Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, having asked him five times to tell me his title, I've already forgotten it again, our old friend Jonathan Shanzer of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, where he is the senior vice president, president, of, vice research. president of research and author of the uh, recent book, Gaza Conflict 2021, uh, his writings on the uh, Gaza-Israel conflict uh, have appeared in commentary as long as, as well as many other writings uh, about the Middle East. And we're thrilled to have him. We're going to talk a lot about the, um, the question of whether or not we are going to see uh, the United States re-enter the JCPOA, the, uh, the, the vaunted Iran deal, uh, which is a bizarre set of circumstances that we have to discuss, given what we're going to discuss first, which is, of course, the continuing conflagration in Ukraine. Um, so, Noah, uh, as we as we enter into the third week, I mean, that sort of I, I'm not quite sure where we it, are in the timeline. I don't even think it's been a week. Uh, hang on. It's been two, oh, it's weeks. Been a two week. weeks on Wednesday, two weeks on Wednesday. OK, so as we as we are as we approach the entry of the third week of the actual hot war here, um, I think it is now fair to say what everybody has been intimating or hinting at, which is that um, militarily, uh, this is a a calamitous disaster for the Russians um, that, you know, uh, that march on Kiev, the encirclement of Kiev, whatever it is, has stalled out. The sabotage is working. Um, even, Even conservative estimates of the kind of damage that the Ukrainians have done to the Russians is kind of staggering the numbers of um, major pieces of military equipment, uh, the number of casualties that the Russians have suffered, uh, which again, you, the fog of war makes it very hard to get these numbers right. And at some point, someone was saying there were 60,000 Russian casualties, which is of course insane. But I mean, uh, several thousand Russians are, 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 have been uh, de- dead or wounded in, in, in just a matter of a couple of weeks that's pretty staggering and the and the ukrainian military successes or whatever you want to call them sabotage successes are are, are pretty stunning this doesn't mean again that there we have any reason to think that if the russians bear down and you know just go at it hard that they can't pummel uh ukraine and the ukrainians into some form of submission at least surface submission um but you know this is a this is a traditional thing for uh, the Russians. Um, they went into Finland in 1939, 1940, and got seriously bogged down in what was called the Winter War. Um, they obviously got bogged down in Afghanistan. It's not as though they have an untrammeled history of success if there is sustained resistance where they have had success and where Putin has had success is in going into places where there really isn't resistance and then just rolling the tanks in and taking over as really was the case in Crimea, for example. So um, is this heartening or frightening for you? The most, I would say the most um, worried uh, for us about the possibility that this conflict is going to somehow escalate into something existentially dangerous beyond the beyond Ukraine and Russia? Well, the best scenario from my perspective is for Russia to get bogged down in Ukraine. That would transform, you know, what were already Europe's killing fields into a, a bloodletting. Um, but that's essentially what we're seeing. What you just expressed, John, is a perfect encapsulation of how the commentary is around this thing, which is that the idea that Russia can crush Ukraine has been reduced to a throat clearing perfunctory aside. Yeah, sure. Russians can do this. We just don't have no idea what they're doing. The information environment is dominated by Ukraine. We don't have accurate 
uh, assessments of the Russian military advance, in part because Moscow's downplaying the the intervention. So they don't we they don't broadcast their own successes, and we don't know them. And Moscow has nine hundred thousand men at arms, and they can use them whenever they want. Blah 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 da 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 da. What you're seeing on the ground doesn't support any of this. So they're reduced to saying, well, eventually, of course, they have to win because they have to win. Um, but what we're seeing is a stalled advance, a badly stalled advance, with the exception of a of a push from Sumy on the, in the Russian border towards Kiev, which has been unopposed because the Ukrainians are falling back to population centers, as we've talked about ad nauseum for some time. The Russian advance in the north is largely stalled. It is um, it has become a war of attrition uh, to a certain degree. Uh, we are beginning to see some long range artillery and more use of uh, Russian bombers, for example, strategic bombers. Um, and we're also seeing a lot of losses because the air is still contested over uh, Ukraine, um, even, up to and including uh, American assessments that Ukraine still has access to most of their fixed wing aircraft. I don't actually know if that's true, because I think we'd see more, <clears throat> more uh, movement in the air from Ukrainian forces. Nevertheless, I say much of the Ukrainian uh, regular army is still intact. We are not at a stage at which we're talking about an insurgency. There is still command and control in place, albeit in a broken way. Um, the advance in the south is a little bit more effective, but it is similarly stalling out around uh, Mykolaiv. Um, they've surrounded Mariupol. They've surrounded Kharkiv. They're crushing Kharkiv, although that can still be resupplied. Mariupol is fully surrounded. Um, and we're just beginning to see what people who study Russian military doctrine expect, which is the absolute decimation of population centers in a, in a way that is contemptuous of modern pieties. Um, very, you know, just bringing back Stalingrad, essentially, in places like Mariupol and Kharkiv, where people can, not many reporters can get in, but when they do get in, they see quite a lot of horrific devastation. The most conservative Western estimates, you can't trust anything coming out of the ministries of defense of Ukraine or Russia because they are at war. The nation that is honest about its enemy casualties in wartime has yet to be found. But a very conservative Western uh, assessment is that roughly 3,000 Russians have died It's uh, in combat. It's likely much larger than that, although we're not sure how much larger than that. But that's already the uh, extent of the casualties that the United States, more than the casualties the United States suffered in the entire Iraq war campaign, um, including the pacification and insurgency and surge and half a dozen others other you know, developments over the course of the 15 years we were there conducting combat operations. Um, so yeah, to say that this is a debacle for the Russian military, I think is absolutely fair. And uh, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about this, overly sanguine, but we are seeing uh, to a shocking degree, the extent to which Ukrainians not only have the will and capacity to resist, but that they are executing very uh, effective um, asymmetric operations against this force in a way that's degrading their capacity to secure strategic objectives. That's, so John, that's exactly Jonathan, what we want. Jonathan Shanzer, you are an expert in, in, in asymmetrical warfare. It's one of the subjects you have been writing about for decades and with a particular focus on, you know, Israel and the Palestinians and, 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 and uh, conflicts in Lebanon and elsewhere. I mean, this is, not just asymm I mean, asymmetrical warfare usually refers to, you know, uh, the circumstance in which you have an uh, overwhelmingly dominating military and a and a kind of rearguard force and action that does what it can to hamper it. Ukraine has a functioning military. That's the thing that I think we haven't quite. I mean, that's uh, Noah, as you said, uh, we we are the United States is saying that Ukraine still maintains an air force. Uh, that that is something that the Russians were un, not able to eliminate. The first thing that we did going into the Gulf twice, uh, Iraq both times, the evening that we started the war was to take out their air force. We flew in, we flew over, and we destroyed hundreds of planes on the first night in 1991 and on the first night in 2003 and basically denied them any ability to strike us from the air, which is, I think, what everybody assumed. It's like War 101 that the, that the Russians would do, and they didn't. We don't quite know why they didn't. We don't understand the circumstances of this. But the fact that they have an, ex, they have, they have an existing a military that, like, be fair is fair. Like, they've spent eight years doing war games preparing for 
this invasion and apparently with some degree of success. So yeah, it, it, I'll just say this, that, that it, it's amazing that certain elements of Ukraine's military still exist. You would think that the Russians would have planned this better. You would think that the Russians uh, would have softened the ground, so to speak, um, before going in, making it effectively a cakewalk. Um, I, I think this war has revealed um, the, the deep, deep flaws in, um, in, in the Russian military. And by the way, we're seeing even reports right now of generals that are coming to the front to try to urge on the fighters who are beginning to flag. I mean, you can get a sense that the um, resolve of the Russian military is beginning to lose some steam. And so generals are going to the front and there have been reports of a number of very senior Russians getting killed um, on those front lines. And these are things that are just unthinkable. Um, when you think about the way that the United States has conducted its wars. So I, I'm shocked by this um, in, in, a, in a pleasant way. I still don't have a whole lot of hope for the Ukrainians holding out long term. I think that has been the assessment of, of most of the military analysts that, that I've talked to. But one other interesting thing to note is just when does mud become a factor? Um, when that does become a factor, you could actually begin to see the slowing of the supply lines. You could see um, Russian um, vehicles actually just getting, you know, uh, limited to paved roads, which then, of course, makes them extremely vulnerable um, to additional asymmetric attacks by the Ukrainian military. This thing could go on for quite some time. And I do think that it's probably good news because, uh, you know, I think the general assessment anyway is that Putin has eyes for territory beyond Ukraine. So if he can be slowed here, then um, that is a net positive. Uh, it's also, by the way, very positive when one considers the fact that the Chinese are eyeing this as well, wondering what an attack on Taiwan might look like. Um, the only thing that really bothers me is that it looked like the US-led world order is being upheld, not by the US, but by a ragtag um, determined group of Ukrainian fighters. And this just does not sit well with me. Can I, can I point out, uh, Noah, you mentioned uh, Stalingrad. And of course, the interesting thing about Stalingrad, this is, this is Stalingrad in reverse. Stalingrad was uh, a Nazi advance on a major Soviet population center. Um, and they were pinned down for 16 months in the siege by the Soviets who did what you've talked about on this, which is that they, they retreated to the city. They sacrificed territory for time. And they just grinded out misery for the advancing Nazis until, you know, 16 months of hell were experienced by the Russians living in Stalingrad and, and, and living through the siege. But they never relented. And this is the Soviet, this is the Russian myth. This is the great Russian myth of the, of the 20th and 21st centuries. The heroism of Stalingrad, the refusal to allow this invading army to get any further, to show that Napoleon lost when he advanced into Russia and the Nazis were going to lose advancing into Russia and that they would do what was necessary to defend their motherland. And here they are. And Kiev could be their Stalingrad. They, they walked themselves Putin who uses the Stalingrad analogy all the time to talk about the immense suffering of the, you know, the unique suffering of the Russians in World War II and how they saved the planet from the Nazis, uh, largely in Stalingrad, has now maybe created a Stalingrad of his own in which well, he is the bad guy. When you, when you, when you talk about asymmetrical warfare, I, I think there's a, one of the key asymmetries here is it's kind of an unexpected one, which is morale. Right. In, in on the two sides. I mean, <clears throat> as we've said and noted, the, the Ukrainians have just been extraordinary in their commitment and their courage. And, and this is you know, this is what they're living for at the moment to, to defend their homeland and report all report. Again, you have to take these reports with a grain of salt. But there are reports of of captured Russian soldiers saying they feel duped um, at, at, at having uh having to invade and, and under the circumstances in which they did. And there's also a sense of desperation on the Russian side. 
um, these things like uh, importing Syrian fighters uh, in, into into Ukraine. <clears throat> so there's a there's a there's a lot of asymmetries here, not not just in the in the sort of the way we normally talk about asymmetrical warfare. I, I would you, add that in the, in the propaganda war, and it, it likely is much of this is propaganda, so it should be taken as as you say with a grain of salt. The getting the Russian moms on social media scolding Putin that that one I like. I like the Russian mothers who have sons fighting this, saying, "How dare you? You told us this was a training exercise." That's actually weirdly very powerful for the Westerners sitting on the sidelines, thinking, "Well, we don't want to get involved Westerners. in war." To hear the moms, <laughs> yeah, Westerners, Russians will never see it. There is no free course, information environment in Moscow anymore. There's no independent media. There's no social media. So you cannot rely on you know, the, the Russian street to do the work for you. It's not going to happen. Russia has demonstrated a, a willingness to absorb a reputational cost here that should absolutely terrify everyone, in part because they're running a Syrian playbook. Uh, we've seen these um, you know, humanitarian corridors that are open for a minute only to be, according to the International Red Cross, mined or hit with their artillery, um, which is very Syria. Now they're talking about actually observing these humanitarian quarters and appear to be doing so, which is even more ominous than just bombing them directly, because if it's the Aleppo Homs playbook, you allow for this period to evacuate civilians and declare every single person in the city a combatant and go ahead and level the place. And we've talked about, you know, Kharkiv has been impossible to secure. And this is this is on the step. And we're talking about a flat plain. Kiev is a city full of hills. 45 degree hills is full of cat caves and chasms, very deep subways. It's the sort of place that could be defended for a very, very long time in an asymmetric way. And if Russia decides to do this for the next four or five months, which is perfectly envisionable, I think, if you have any imagination, then, yeah, we're talking about a scale of destruction on the European continent akin to what we saw in Syria in a way that will further shock the minds of, of Europe that we've in a way that we haven't even seen already. The amount of react the reaction has been intense and horrified and has been appropriate. We haven't seen anything. And they, they are yet. also they're targeting uh, Western media now pretty directly. We've had several reports just over the last 48 hours. There was a Swiss reporter. who I mean, They very clearly marked just press on their vehicles and on their clothing. And they're being shot at directly by the army. Again, an attempt to intimidate any sort of media that might feed into the Europe to Europe and to the US even they're targeting that the biggest problem is that the analysts who expect the, the Russian advance to eventually succeed only by virtue of throwing meat into the grinder a la Stalingrad is that they haven't threaded the needle where we get from a half a million men at arms or sorry quarter million men at arms in Ukraine to a half a million men at arms we have to get there in order to pacify this place and it's just sort of assumed no one ever goes to the point at which Moscow actually orders the draw up of all these forces out of the periphery, out of, you know, the east, out of the out of Central Asia, literally leaving just about every border in, in Moscow, in Russia, rather undefended. I mean, that's what that's what Russia would have to do in order to see this campaign through to the end. And nobody, no, I haven't seen many military strategists grapple with that reality because it is it is existential from Russia's perspective. See, I want to go back to this asymmetrical war, this bizarre, maybe unprecedented circumstance. Uh, and again, Jonathan, this is where I would turn to you of um, of a successful asymmetrical warfare program in tandem with an extant military capacity, a conventional military capacity in the form of men in uniform who have trained extensively and how to do X, Y, and Z and, and fixed wing aircraft and, and other sorts of things combined with sabotage, uh, you know, whatever it is, darting in and out, as you say, the asymmetrical warfare possibilities on a, on a paved road. I mean, we've already seen that. It's one of the reasons that the advance of the convoy halted and where, you know, I sort of give myself weird credit simply uh, not as a military strategist, but as somebody like watching things on television, seeing that convoy and thinking, this seems stupid. Like they're on this one road, you know, even I could figure out how to flatten 200 tires. And I, you know, I can, I can, I don't, I can barely operate a toaster, you know, uh, you flatten a tire of a giant truck. You it's, two hours to change the tires of the truck, like, and you slow everything down behind it. So um, uh, 
have, do, do you know of a sort of analog? I mean, if you think about Israel's difficulty with asymmetrical warfare in the past, the whole point about it is that they've had relatively total command of the territory in which they are being attacked from, right? I mean, this is West Bank, not Gaza, fair enough, but West Bank in during the Intifada and all the Intifada existed because the Palestinians had no normal military capacity of any sort. So all they had was asymmetrical warfare, and they 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 managed it reasonably brilliantly until the Israelis then used their own advantage, geographical, military, and a material advantage to kind of wear it down and and hunt and peck and search and root out bomb factories and things like that, and then essentially end the second intifada. Yeah, I think I think that's true. But, I, I, you know, I'm actually more interested right now in looking at, um, you know, Hezbollah in particular. This is a, a more of a hybrid force, one that engages in that in those asymmetric type attacks while also uh, maintaining a, what is akin to a modern military. In some ways, Hezbollah has actually got more uh, military capacity than a lot of European uh, armies. And what I think is interesting is that both in the Hezbollah and Hamas context, they have um, fought Israel to a tie repeatedly. We see it all the time. I mean, Israel will claim that it has achieved all of its military objectives, but they're not trying to go in. They don't want to reoccupy southern Lebanon or, or the Gaza Strip. Um, and also the Israelis are constrained by their own morality. Right. They could turn Gaza into a parking lot. They could turn southern Lebanon or the Becca Valley into a parking lot. And I think this is what I'm watching for right now with the Russians. I don't believe that Putin will find himself to be constrained in the way that the Israelis have in the past, where they're willing to fight to a tie and to allow for a quiet front for another couple of years. That's always been the goal for Israel is just fight to at least quiet things down and to neutralize their enemy. That for Putin, this is, of course, a war of aggression. This is a war of conquest. And so, um, I, I mean, there, there are some similarities, but that is the big difference. And I just wonder what Putin will do next. So we are, uh, we are apparently, uh, as we're recording, the Biden uh, White House is preparing for Biden to come out and announce uh, full embargo on Russian oil products. Um, you know, which is interesting because uh, we get to that, uh, we get to this point about these sanctions, which was, if you're going to levy them, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you shock and awe the sanctions at the beginning? And I think it shows that, that um, just how fast this is moving, that they really thought that they could, they could, they would have the sanctions that they had in place. Biden said, give it a month, we'll see how it's going. And that the, um, the need to strike and strike hard uh, and to keep going and to and to kind of continue to strangle uh, the Russian economy or like tighten the strangulation of the Russian economy um, outdistanced their capacity to see that they were going to do this eventually. And uh, either either that's fine because now now it'll happen and uh, with all the attendant pain that it's going to cause there and here. Um, I, I just wonder about the. Um, I wonder about the effect. Uh, I mean, you know, the polling numbers are astonishing, right? Something like 70 to 80% of Americans say they're willing to suffer higher prices at the gas pump uh, if, we, if we were to embargo Russian, Russian petroleum products. I mean, I was, I, I gassed up on, on, on Sunday night um, and uh, in New Jersey, which is, you know, classically a relatively low priced gas state oh you haven't tuned in since the christie years we we've, we've sacrificed it's the still... social compact here where we have very high uh property taxes and no gas tax and in the christie years yeah. they imposed a gas tax so the social I know, but it's still it's, st it's, it's still considerably lower than new york than new york state and uh, it was you know 420 a gallon and that was before all of this started so i mean we're going to see five six dollars a gallon in a matter of days if not more you know these are numbers we've never seen before i mean yeah it's not just at the gas pump what we really um rely on is like three percent of our oil we get from from russia what we really rely on are um, petroleum products gasoline yeah. diesel jet fuel gas blended stocks yeah. most of it goes to the pacific northwest northwest out of Vladivostok. Um, so yeah, we're going to have significant logistical problems in this country to say nothing of price increases. And the administration is very short-sighted 
if it thinks that this patriotic fervor will last into the next three, four months, uh, especially I don't know the what they, they, they didn't. They clearly didn't want to do it. No. Well, they, they, they wanted want to, do, to it. do it and they have been if they did want to do it, they wanted to do it in concert with our allies to a certain degree. Um, we just simply can't because our allies are so dependent on uh, gas from and particularly natural gas from Russia, which is why we should have been preparing for this many, many years ago. Look, the stagflation of the 1970s was 75 percent of it was due to oil to oil shocks, 73 and 79. I mean, after the 79 oil embargo, um, we, you know, we got to 18% inflation in the United States. Like we're at seven now or seven and a half now, God knows where it goes. And remember, a lot of that is also perceptual. Like, as you say, we only get 3% of our gas, you know, or sort of are at the pump gas uh, this way, but uh, that's not going to, that's not going to matter when it comes to, uh, you know, public panics and worries about supplies and, and 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 what briefly kind of jp morgan be. estimates that yeah. um we could be at about 185 dollars a barrel by the end of 2022 if this continues it's roughly about 150 now which is a record price and the estimate is that for every 10 dollars per barrel increase in oil prices inflation in the u.s rises by uh two tenths of a percent right i mean which is a full fair, so basically a full history percent. yeah i mean to be fair the history of uh oil panics and the prices of the i mean i think if i'm not mistaken that number is the highest in like you know in in numerical terms but but i mean we were at over a hundred dollars a barrel in the late 70s at the at the time of of the oil at the time of the second oil embargo and (laughs) that was over 45 years ago whatever just for inflation john if you adjust for that's inflation, these aren't the highest yeah, prices no. we've ever experienced. And people are like, well, wait a minute. No, that's no, no, actually no, the problem. no, we are. <laughs> no, we are. We are in for I, I mean, I don't think it's the patriotic fervor. I think, again, you know, it's a weird thing, which is that there are some things that are worse than more direct military involvement. I understand what you're you know, no. And now we get back into the point about whether or not we can even we can even dare to do military involvement. But, you know, you do all this and there's a kind of worldwide economic effect most of which is related to needing to be tough and trying to strangle Putin's efforts here in the, you know, in the cradle. Uh, but the ancillary consequences, you know, uh, m- are going to be very severe for a very long time. Um, and it's a question of what the trade-off is, wh- whether there was other stuff that could have been done. You know, we look at we say we can't do a no fly zone. That's part of war, right? That's where now we're in a shooting war with Russia, which I don't think is exactly true. But and I'm not saying that, you know, because they have a nuke, we can't do that. I know that's the general argument. But, you know, if they're if the world economy goes through a colossal spasm, you know, uh, way more painful than we even have begun to contemplate. Uh, I don't really know uh, whether or not you're going to look back at this and say we wouldn't have been better had we, you know, taken more conventional methods, including like, yeah, shipping American planes and handing them to the Ukrainians, which, you know, we're not even talking about doing right. We're talking about getting Polish planes to the Ukrainians and and uh, and other kinds of planes. And I don't know. I don't know. Let me let me uh, go to a break and then we want to talk about um, Iran. Um, uh so obviously this is a very stressful moment for the world and for everybody. Um, I think we were hoping that our stress level was going to decrease as, 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 uh, as the pandemic period came to an end, but uh, it's not really the case. And so uh, if you're feeling stressed in a way that you didn't expect to feel stressed, it's time to start thinking about Headspace. Um, you know, uh, Headspace is an app scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health In fact, a recent study proved in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Uh, Whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. Once you download the Headspace app and try their mindfulness routines, it takes just a few minutes a day to change your relationship with stress and anxiety to start feeling better from waking up happier to getting your mind ready for bed. Make 2022 the year you incorporate mindfulness into your daily life and change your mental health for the better. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash commentary and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash commentary today 
headspace.com slash commentary. And, uh, you know, we're hearing all this stuff about uh, the Russians closing down um, people's access to the internet. And, you you know, so we're thinking about this a lot. But, you know, you may want to do something about closing down access to the internet, your internet and the materials that you have on the internet from hackers. And that's why you want to look at ExpressVPN because every time you connect to an unencrypted network in a cafe, a hotel, an airport, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone, just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart 12-year-old could do it. So if you use ExpressVPN, here's what you get. You get an encrypted tunnel. Between your device and the internet, hackers won't be able to steal your sensitive data. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. You fire up the app, it's so easy to use. You click one button, you get protected, and it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary. And you can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash commentary. Jonathan Shanzer, one of the oddities are our present moment. We've been sitting here waiting for a year as the Biden, as uh, Biden promised during his campaign. And as he decided he needed to f- fulfill his campaign promise that we are going to re-enter I guess that's the term that they're using, although obviously it's going to be a completely different deal. Re-enter the JCPOA, the Iran deal that was struck in in 2015 that uh, that Donald Trump pulled us out of in 2017, 2018? 18. In 2018, 18. okay. Um, and uh, uh, we're a lot of us are shaking our head. First of all, we're shaking our heads at the whole notion of doing this, and we should go into that, but we're particularly shaking our heads because... Uh, the key player in the Iran deal, aside from the United States and Iran, is Russia, right? In what way, if you could lay out for people, what role would Russia play in the um, in the in the renewal of the Iran deal for the United States and for Iran? Sure. So, I mean, the Russians have been the key mediator, as you probably know the United States is not in direct talks with Iran. It's indirect. So they're shuttling back and forth in Vienna. And the key player is uh, Mikhail Yulianov. And he's uh, Putin's envoy to Vienna. And he's the one who continues to come up with compromises. I'll put those in air quotes, because those are the things that he suggests basically upon Iranian um, uh, these are Iranian ideas. And he'll present them to the United States. The United States invariably um, accepts these compromises, has not stood firm. So the deal continues to be a lopsided one. Uh, massive sanctions relief that is going to Iran, at least from what we understand right now. Um, and this is all being facilitated by the Russians. Um, the Russians are also right now looking for a carve out. Um, now, Blinken has balked at this for the moment, but they're very desperate for a deal. This carve out would effectively mean that Russia would be able to continue to trade with Iran, even as it comes under massive sanctions from the West right now, that they would still have the ability to work with Iran. And of course, the Iranians are masters at money laundering, moving money around the world for rogue states. So this could be a way for Russia to continue to bring in money, even as uh, the US sanctions tighten. So it's really confusing that this would be the case. Um, I think that at the end of the day, people have asked, well, why would Russia want to do this for Iran? Um, You know, on the one hand, the Russians and the Iranians are, they're working together in Syria, but they're also a bit at odds. They're not entirely on the same page. Um, They also see themselves as competitors in some shape or form in, in that part of the world. But I believe that Russia understands that ultimately a strengthened Iran and perhaps even a nuclear armed Iran Uh, would ultimately undermine the U.S.-led world order, and that is in their interest. But I think beyond that, they now see themselves as being directly involved in a major uh, multinational um, deal uh, at a moment when they're supposed to be isolated, and they see this carve-out for themselves. So I think they've played the United States masterfully. The Biden administration, not a shock to me, but they've, um, they've welcomed the Russians to the table, and I think they've got played. As um, as as did the Obama administration, but got get played by the Russians in Syria. Correct, correct. So uh, what we have here is a classic um, asymmetry, which is to say that we clearly want to re 
install or the United States, clearly government with the United States, wants to uh, re-enter a deal with Iran. Um, and that's significantly less important to Iran than it is to us. So the question is, what do they get for acceding to our desire? That seems to be the largest. <clears throat> and Richard Goldberg, your colleague uh, at FDD, has sort of systematically gone through like it's uh, they're going to get access to $100 billion, I guess, in not quite. It's not quite the same as they got the $150 billion back that we had been keeping. Right. Not cash, but, but sanctions relief. And, and by the way, that, that's significant because when they get this money right now, their accessible cash reserves, which is the major metric that all of the sanctions geeks look at, Right, that there's there was roughly four billion dollars accessible to the Iranians at the height of the Trump era sanctions. This is going to go back up to about a hundred billion dollars, which means they'll be able to buy whatever they need to uh, in cash in the arms market. Uh, they'll be able to support terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis, etc. But there's it's more than that because right now it looks like we're going to relax sanctions on the IRGC, which is their primary tool for terrorism sponsorship around the world. We're going to relax sanctions on the Supreme Leader, which has a massive slush fund that uh, is thrown around for nuclear as well as terrorism means. Um, we're going to see sanctions relief on the worst human rights abusers. These are people that have carried out war crimes abroad in places like Syria and Yemen, but also have been torturing people at home. So we're completely capitulating on that. In another year, you're going to see the end of the restrictions on ballistic missile um, projects in Iran, which means they are going to legally have the means to deliver a nuclear weapon uh, in a very short amount of time. So this kind of negates everything that we're trying to do in terms of restricting Iran's nuclear program. But I'll, I'll give you two other things that we're watching that really bother me right now. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency to close the files on Iran's previous nuclear activity. In other words, they just want the international, this is the Biden administration, asking the IAEA to just look the other way on what we know Iran has already been doing. These files are open for a reason. This is nuclear mendacity, if you will. And there is a, uh, a deliberate attempt by the Biden administration to paper all of this over. But the last thing, and this is, these are reports out of Iran right now. And so we need to be very careful about what we accept as truth. But this has been echoed by other folks that we've talked to in the region. There, the Biden administration looks to be set to offer the Iranians what is being called an inherent guarantee. So this basically means that in the future, Democrat or Republican administrations may decide that Iran's not upholding its end of the deal. If they pull out, Iran has a legal ability pursuant to this deal to begin to uh, enrich uranium at much higher levels and to install advanced centrifuges. So in other words, this administration appears to be taking the side of Iran in future disagreements before they even know what future administrations may have a problem with. And the insanity of this, I, I, I can't tell you I've never seen anything like this in any deal, in any international diplomatic arrangement. This is beyond bizarre. So this looks like a full capitulation by the Biden administration. Well, let, let's go to that last point first. So so that seems very specific to a specific thing that happened in 2015, which is that seems to be some kind of prospective effort to block the letter, a kind of letter of the sort that Tom Cotton wrote to the Supreme Leader of Iran, in which he said, I just want you to understand the way America works. You can do whatever you want here. We have political change in the United States. A new administration can come in and it can change the policy. So don't think that you know, you're going to get away scot-free here. And there was an enormous hue and cry about how one of 100 senators, representative of Arkansas, was somehow interfering with American foreign policy 
simply because he had written a commonsensical letter expressing a proper view that if this JCPOA was not going to be submitted to the Senate as a treaty and therefore be permanently binding on the United States, that it was simply an expression of administration policy and that a future administration could, and as happened, did revoke it or change it. Um, This letter is some kind of promise to Iran that that won't happen again to Iran, a, a kind of effort to tie prospectively tie the hands of American officials and campaign people and 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 Republican politicians from expressing their views uh, and saying properly that um, uh, these agreements um, they are they are set in stone if they are submitted to the Senate as a treaty and passed by a two-thirds majority as treaties are passed by two-thirds majorities failing that, uh, they are not binding on future administrations or indeed on the present administration. And they're somehow going to get around that by by issuing this proclamation, which is kind of startling. It, it, there is absolutely the, the political context, which I think you've laid out very well. But you also have to understand here that what they're doing is they're guaranteeing nuclear advancements, things that never would have been allowed. They're basically saying right now in advance, you can do these things. This would have been beyond the pale for the non-proliferation community a few short years ago. And now they're saying, go right ahead. You can install football fields worth of advanced centrifuges, which will allow you to get to that breakout time that much quicker. And we're doing this to make sure that somebody like Donald Trump won't be able to get out of the deal quickly as he did last time without thinking twice. In other words, they're taking the side of Iran over America. And that is insane. There's there's also there, there's something here that's actually been part of a broader strategy on the left lately, and that the Biden administration has clearly embraced both domestically and in foreign policy. And that's when the democratic system doesn't do what you want, you find ways around it, whether it's executive orders, because you know you'll never get something passed through Congress, whether it's we don't like that the Supreme Court is more conservative leaning now, so let's pack it with more people, let's add states. It's a weird kind of way of saying. Our system has the beauty of our system is the fact that every four years we can toss one guy or gal out and put someone else in who can change everything up. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. They are trying to institutionalize things that are anti-democratic at their core so that future leaders who the public wants to see who, who are put into office to initiate change, whether it's in foreign policy or domestic policy, have their hands tied. And then when the public says, why are we in this? Aren't we worried about a nuclear run? You can just imagine the Gen Saki briefing. Well, we have an international order. We have a non-proliferation agreements. They'll cite the very things that they're actually trying to undermine to justify not doing anything. Um, we have interesting uh, political cross-currents within the Biden administration or within this negotiating team, uh, the American negotiating team, um, uh, two months ago, I believe, uh, one of the lead negotiators, lead American negotiators, Richard Nephew, quit the effort, um, which is a sort of unprecedented thing to do. Uh, and he quit and he said, I'm leaving because I have substantive disagreements with the way that the administration is, is proceeding on this matter. The negotiating team being led by uh, Robert Malley, uh, who was a uh, leading NSC official in the Obama administration. Um, that's pretty startling also. Like, I, I'm not sure that I remember uh, a, a resignation on principle in the middle of a very, very complicated, you know, negotiation like this. Um, again, were this the Trump administration and such a thing had happened in a Trump negotiation, Richard Nephew would be one of the most famous people in the United States instead of being someone you haven't heard of until I mentioned him just now, um, even though he has a very interesting and memorable name. Um, so that's that's one thing. But I wanted to ask, uh, as a devil's advocate thing or something like that, so put on your – imagine, Jonathan Shanzer, that you are uh, the bot, you are Robert Malley. And uh, you have to face a skeptical person, I don't know, Robert Menendez, Senator Menendez, or somebody like that, somebody who is deeply skeptical of what you are doing here, but is somebody who is in your camp and you can't just dismiss as being some kind of a Republican plant. 
Um, how do you make your case for why this is a good thing outside of Biden said he would go back into the JCPOA during the campaign. He has to fulfill his campaign promise. Can you think of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the argument is one um, that has become um, sort of binary and, and you hear the Israelis talk about all the, this all the time with their U S counterparts. The, the, the difference is you can legitimize right now the uh, Iranian gains that have been made and then try to enforce some measure of transparency on a state sponsor of terrorism that holds nothing but disdain for the United States and is likely to obfuscate every move that they make from here on out. And that would be the major critique of the deal that we're getting into. Um, what the Israelis would like to do instead, and what I think a lot of Iran hawks here in the United States, Arab uh, countries as well, UAE, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, which would be to um, isolate the Iranians politically, isolate them economically, put immense pressure on them and watch their nuclear program like a hawk um, with the threat of uh, military force if they try to break out or sneak out. This is what they would like to do instead. But Mali will say, look, we're, we know that this is a bad regime, or, or I'm not sure exactly that's how he would describe it, but we need to try to keep them transparent. We need to keep this um, nuclear program in a box, right? We need to contain it and we need them to be as forthcoming as possible. The problem I think is that this box is made out of cardboard. Maybe there's no bottom to it. Maybe it's a jack in a box, right? We're, we're not looking at a, uh, a, a regime in Iran that is going to allow itself to be restrained. We've already seen the last time around after the deal was signed that there were things that they were hiding from the West. There were things that were hiding from the IAEA. We, we should not expect them to be honest about their intentions or their current progress on the nuclear front. And that's essentially the discrepancy here. If this was a more responsible nation, a more transparent country, not the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism, maybe they would have an argument. I don't think they have one now. I think it's worth tying this to the first half of our discussion today. In light of the somewhat sotto voce nuclear blackmail to which the, the Putin has subjected the world right now, um, isn't there a really important lesson here to learn about dictatorial regimes and <clears throat> their promises, particularly around things like weapons of mass destruction and 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 the 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 relative benefits of diplomacy versus hard power and and you know maybe let's not let anyone else get into this position and be serious about it not not not, not just put them in a cardboard box look you're making an incredibly important point in 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 three respects one of them is that um we have no right to be surprised by putin's actions right why because he told us he's been telling us for 10 years or longer than that that this is what he wanted to do he wants to reintegrate or integrate ukraine into russia and we didn't believe him china says it wants to take taiwan a lot of people just simply don't believe it they think it's just lip service and Iran says it wants to obliterate Israel. Uh, the only country in the world that really takes Iran's threat to obliterate Israel seriously is Israel. And so the question going forward is, these are dictatorial regimes hungry for power who have old-fashioned ideas about power and the exercise of power. And as Matt Continetti says in a forthcoming piece for commentary, Maybe we should believe what they say and therefore act accordingly. Take them at their word because they're not bullshitters. Uh, Jonathan. I think there's something, uh, this, is, th this is a profound point, but I would even take it a step further. The, the big mistake that I believe the United States has made repeatedly over recent decades, I mean, you could really take this back to the 1970s, um, in the outreach to China. And then after that, the, the way in which we've tried to um, welcome 
the Russians into the US-led world order or whatever we're calling it. Um, uh, and, and now we're trying to do it to Iran, this idea that somehow access to our systems, access to cash, access to credit, access to political legitimacy will somehow transform these rogue states and these autocrats and these dictators and these murderous people. And we continue to delude ourselves that this is in fact possible. It continues to happen here and we're doing it with Iran, even though I think you know, Putin has disproved this, Xi Jinping has disproved this, and yet here we are trying to do it again this is Lucy in the football. It's it, it's truly insane what the Biden administration has deluded itself into thinking. But I also wanted to add another point about what Abe, what you said about you know Putin's nuclear blackmail. We can see in historical terms uh, that the you know the 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 gigantic mistake uh, that was made here historically, if you look at the present circumstance, was Ukraine giving up its nuclear deterrent. <laughs> Uh, in 1994, in exchange for a promise at Amsterdam that we that we in the West would make sure that what is happening to Ukraine right now wouldn't happen. That's not a treat. It's not binding, really. It's a declaration of, pr- of principles. But um, if you're if you are now uh, a country on Earth, what you want to do, the, the idea of what has gone on, the failure of our deterrent against Putin. Uh, would lead you to think that every country in the world should now, we should now have a galloping nuclear proliferation problem. Because one of the ways to stymie any effort to control or contain your behavior, if you're a bad actor, is to have a nuke. So Iran, that's very important for Iran. And then, of course, we have the real reason that for 20 years almost, people have been talking about doing something about the Iranian nuclear program and uh, making sure that it didn't happen because... That this deal is struck, and the real issue is what does Saudi Arabia do? What does Egypt do? What do these countries do when they are when they are existentially threatened as Israel is by Iran? Saudi Arabia not going to try to get a nuke now? Oh, of course it's going to try to, you know, if we if this happens. Now, the last point here is we're talking about this as though this thing can happen with the Soviet Russians as the guarantor or the mediator, and we're about to destroy Russia's economy. Today, some point in the next hour as I'm speaking, we're going to make an announcement that we are destroying Russia's export economy. One of the things that we're trying to do here is to get Russia to negotiate against itself in this deal, because one of the advantages, chiefly, you know, this the Russia crisis didn't precipitate this. On February 9, you had... um, Senator Chris Murphy emerging from classified briefings, telling reporters, look, they're weeks away from a breakout. They have enough nuclear fuel to make a bomb if they want to. Um, so it's not as though the Russia crisis precipitated this. The Russia crisis has, has heightened our need to get uh, Iranian oil back on the market, escrow, wherever the funds go for escrow or otherwise. But just get it on the market to relieve this pressure. They're also mounting counteroffensives, energy counteroffensives, trying to reintegrate Venezuela into the uh, community of nations just to get this done, too. But we need Russia to take their mu- nuclear fuel right in order to get Iranian oil on the market. Well, Russia's reportedly stalling now a little bit because they benefit from high prices. They don't want to flood the market with Iranian oil. They need all the revenue they can possibly generate from from uh, Russian energy exports. So now we we're in a place where we need Russia to do something that is not no longer in their interest. I mean the 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 the, the contradictions and and manifold uh, bizarreries of the fact that we entered into this negotiation in the way that we did. I mean let's put it this way even if you think that it was a mistake to pull out of the Iran deal in 2018 the way we pulled out of the Iran deal. Um and I mean, I, you know, there's an, there, there, there's an argument there, I suppose. Um, but it just became axiomatic in the Democratic primaries that, you know, if Trump did X, then you did not X. And everything he did, you were going to reverse every single thing. And what we ended up doing was, uh, you know, imposing these sanctions a year later, uh, particularly after we, after, after Soleimani, the head of the... Um, uh, you know, basically the leading terrorist uh, in the world was taken out, um, was to do this thing where we ch- choked off their reserves and we choked off, we, we made sure that they no longer had any money, as Jonathan, as you laid out. 
Um, and um, why that's bad, even from the Biden perspective, I'm not, I, I'm a little at a loss as to understand why the resulting fact that we put these sanctions on, what it is that you look at there as Tony Blinken uh, and say, Boy, that's really bad. What Trump did there, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta stop that because uh, the Iranians really need a lot more access to capital uh, so that they can buy uh, weapons we don't want them to have and build centrifuges we don't want them to build. They're still trying to prove a theory, which is that Iran, if given access to capital, if allowed into diplomacy with the West, welcomed as uh, welcomed as a legitimate member of the community of nations, that they're willing to do the right thing, that they're willing to keep their nuclear program contained uh, and to work with the international community. That's what the theory is. It is, it's never been proven. I still believe to this day that keeping pressure on Iran while negotiating would be the right thing to do. Um, somehow this has escaped the Biden administration. But look, more than anything right now, you could have argued three months ago, five months ago, look, we need to keep working on this Iran deal. This is the only crisis that we need to face. If we just put this in a box now, we can pivot to Asia. I mean, that was kind of the thinking here in Washington just a few short months ago. Since the invasion of Ukraine, everything is turned on its head. Right. The United States is about to make concessions to Putin through this deal. That should not be happening. We have to figure out how to thread the needle here. And I don't think that coughing up concession after concession to the Iranians is the way to do this. The world is now watching. I just wonder if this can happen. I just it's like, you know, absent what happened over the last two or three weeks, I think it it was inevitable that we would go back into the, the idea that today of all days, I mean, the the story last week was today was going to be the day that they would announce the return to the Iran deal. And instead they're announcing that we are banning all Russian petroleum products. Um, I don't understand how you make this next announcement that says, um, uh, we have this fantastic deal that the that the Russians are are the third you know or the third leg of the stool on. I, yeah, I don't and, understand and it. I don't. No, and I it's don't... it's even harder. I think now, John, if you think about you know the collapse that we had in Afghanistan, the the, the overall erosion of uh, American power projection uh, as as this entire thing unfolds, and then you say, oh, and by the way, we have great news. We're going to be giving a hundred billion dollars to the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Look at how American diplomacy is working. It's just unthinkable right See, now. I agree with that as a matter of law. I'm, I'm literally talking about like right now, this week, today, we're we're about to go. Basically, we're doing everything short of dropping bombs on Moscow. Well, the um, spin. And, the, and then we're going to it just doesn't follow logically that by even Biden, who is a who bizarrely doesn't follow logic often, can turn around and then announce the return to the JCPOA with Russia as a key player. The spin coming out of uh, certain media sources that are sympathetic to, to the Biden administration and to and to a new nuclear deal with Iran is that this is what you, we need to do because the world needs Iranian energy sources now, Iran uh, energy uh, uh, resources now. Good well, luck. there's that and the, the, this bizarre thing where they went to Venezuela uh, a Russian, a Russian vassal state, the only country on earth that was was supporting Venezuela is that in Cuba, the only country supporting Venezuela in its efforts to crush, to crush, you know, to to to, to have Maduro re-steal the election and and survive uh, the punishing sanctions placed on on Venezuela in the wake of its, um, you know, horrendous uh, that regime's horrendous conduct. We're now going to negotiate with Venezuela. I mean. Uh, you know, again, there's a kind of illogic going on. It's like the Biden people, half of them are like, we're in a new world. And half of them are like, let's pretend like we're in the Carter administration, which I really don't think is a good model. But nonetheless, you could sort of, I, I don't think it's a good model, but uh, they do. I mean, they, they like a lot of things that happened there. So I don't know. 
Um, Jonathan Shanzer, thank you so much for joining us and being so illuminating. Uh, Gaza Conflict 2021, still available uh, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Kindle and wherever you want to find it. Uh, and we will be back with you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah, and John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.